0: I started off the series by saying uh, three things about death on Easter Sunday that we really need to know, uh, kind of as a foundation, and that is that that death does not belong. Uh, the death hasn't always been around. It hasn't always been in our world. It was ushered into our world uh, through disobedience to God, uh, through sin, and that in the Bible is clear that the the cost of sin or the wage of sin is death. That there is a uh, there is a consequence and a cost to sin in our lives. So. First, death does not belong, then death is an enemy. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the last enemy to be defeated before God's new world is fully ushered in is death itself. And so we, we realize then that death is an enemy. And then third fact about death is that death itself is dying. That because of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, it ushered in for us a brand new kind of world called, that the scripture calls the kingdom of God and uh, it is the, the death itself will one day die. Well, where we went from there is that we said that hope has a name, uh, that uh, Mary and Martha lose uh, in John chapter 11. Uh, Mary and Martha lose their brother Lazarus, and uh, they, they begin to ask all sorts of questions or make all sorts of statements uh, that begin with if only. Jesus, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And uh, right in the middle of our if only when we lose a loved one, uh, it can be very difficult and, and we can begin to blame God. God, if you had only answered our prayer, if, if, he had, if only he had not gotten into the car that night. And we have all kinds of if only statements. But in the middle of, of their if only, Jesus points them to the hope of the future, uh, which is resurrection. Uh, and then he says that he himself is the resurrection. And what we came to understand from the second week of the series is that hope has a name. That, that, the center, that, that we're not placing our faith in a doctrine. We're not placing our, our hope in, in a particular system of belief. We're not even placing our hope in a uh, particular kind of, of religion. Although I'm not to, to say that all religions lead to the same place. Christianity is a particular kind of religion. But at the center of Christianity is the person of Christ. And so hope has a name. And his name is, is Jesus. And then last week where we went is uh, that the Bible tells us that we ought not to grieve without hope, that we ought to grieve uh, with hope. And then it paints a picture for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul paints a picture of us uh, where the trumpet will sound and uh, Christ will return. And the dead in Christ, those who have died and with their faith in Christ, will, will be raised first. And the Greek word there is the Greek word for bodily resurrection. They will be raised first, and then those who are still alive will, will join Christ in the, in the air. Not to then go up and, and ex- live some existence in a faraway heaven, but to come down and be ushered in to God's new world altogether. And uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback from all of you which I like, which is good. Because there's a lot of times I pour my heart and soul into a, a particular sermon or a particular series, and, and I don't get any feedback. And so I'm like, well, was that really great or really bad? I don't know, and maybe I'll never know. But uh, this series, you all have provided me a lot of feedback, and that's been, that's been good. And a lot of the feedback then has been um, questions. And uh, the questions arise from this content that I've been teaching uh, where I, I have essentially said again that his that the work of redemption of jesus the, the work of redemption in the world is where the gospel sets out to renew this world and ourselves to be fully redeemed and made new, and ultimately then my argument is that, is that this gives us a very real hope, a very, a very tangible hope, a very mature hope that, that when we think about the afterlife, that when we think about uh, what, what heaven will one day be, uh, it doesn't have to be shrouded in all sorts of, of, of mystery. It doesn't have to be uh, sort of populated in our thoughts with, with uh, thoughts of halos and wings and clouds and, and, and all of these things, but, but rather we can, we can have, a, have a sure foundation of hope uh, that God is, is redeeming this world. It's not that he will throw it away and start all over in favor of something else, but the very act of redemption is, is taking something and not redoing it, but renewing it. And that's a really important distinction. And so uh, many of the questions, though, have, have come up, and I want to address two of them before we jump into the content for this morning. Will that be all right? How many of you, as a re- result of the last three weeks, you've got some questions? Oh, oh, nobody. Oh, okay. You guys, so some of you have some questions. Some of you are like, whatever, the preacher asked me to raise my hand. It doesn't matter what he says, I'm not raising my hand, okay? I know that some of you are, are, on, on, are like that. The first question is, uh, so, Pastor, are you saying um, that there's no heaven? And uh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, heaven is absolutely real. Uh, heaven is a tremendous hope for us. Uh, but I am saying that that the way in, in ways in which we've thought about heaven uh, probably aren't uh, very scriptural in terms of this sort of disembodied existence in a far-off heaven. And so, yes, heaven is real. It's the realm of God where his will is done perfectly all the time. But it is not pie in the sky when you die, nor is it a place really high in the sky uh, where we float on clouds, but rather heaven is the realm of reality in which the will of God is done perfectly all the time, which is precisely when the disciples ask Jesus, what should we pray or how should we pray? One of the key lines in this prayer is that he teaches us to pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this realm of reality uh, where where God's will is done perfectly, he's saying let's bring that into our realm, our brokenness, so that God's will would be done more and more in the world. That is to say that we would begin to take on more matters of compassion and answer injustice and and that there's all sorts of actions related to that. Uh, So heaven is absolutely real. So for those of you that are sort of leaving this series and saying, oh, is heaven real? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, is it real in the sense that it is a far-off place in the sky? Uh, then, then probably not. Okay? You all still with me? Sort of. All right, that's good. The key question, though, that has been asked is, um, so, so where are my loved ones now that have died? If our future hope lies in resurrection into God's new world, and God's new world isn't yet fully here, then, then where uh, are the loved ones that I've lost right now? And I want to spend a, a couple of minutes addressing this, because I think this is important. Um, and, and for me, it's very personal. And I, I mentioned on the very first week of this series that this series and this study in my own life was precipitated by the death of my own father uh, about a year ago. And so as we creep closer and closer to the one-year anniversary of his death, uh, the question comes to my mind often. uh, Where is he now, and what is he experiencing? And the scripture uh, says a lot more about the final destination, the the resurrection into God's new world, but it does give us some clues as to uh, what is happening to our loved ones who have passed away now. And uh, the, the bottom line, and let me give you the bottom line, and then let me give you some scriptural evidence for it. The bottom line is that those who have died in Christ are right now experiencing all the fullness of the presence of God. We're right where uh, in, our, in our current lives and in our broken world, we sort of experience the love of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God veiled in some way. Uh, we don't see it completely or fully. Those who have died are right now experiencing the unveiled presence of goodness and grace of God. Okay? And there is some scriptural evidence for that. Paul in his own words said for me to for to me to live is Christ and to die is to gain. And so Paul himself is sort of stuck in this middle ground. He sees the the, the life that he is to live now, and the commission that he has, and the value of, of of spreading the gospel here, and yet he says that to die there is a gain for me; that I will experience the presence of God and the fullness of God. That if I were to die bodily before the resurrection, in Second Corinthians five eight, he says we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. As Jesus hangs on the cross in Luke chapter 23, uh, one of the thieves on either side of him is, is, is begging him and he says, uh, will you allow me into your kingdom or will you allow me, uh, you know, show me your kingdom and let me into your kingdom when it comes. And Jesus replies to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. There seems to be this immediacy to the presence of God after bodily death. And then many people would point to our hope of, of heaven to, in John chapter 14, chapter two, which says in my father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you And I go uh, there to prepare a place for you. And uh, I want to draw a, a, a picture here of, of what this might look like and what our, our hope uh, really is and, and how we ought to, to think about where our our loved ones now. And uh, we're gonna try this. I think I've brought with me today my digital whiteboard so that all of you can see the picture that I draw. Huh? You guys excited about that? Probably not as much as I am, but pretty excited. Okay, so um, my daughter was playing this before the service, so I've got to go from baby blue to, to black. Um, but think about it like this. Um, we have our life here. And then we've said that, that our ultimate hope is, is resurrection into God's new world Run out of space. Can you guys see that? All right. Hey, is this cool or what? We've entered a brand new chapter in the life of our church, the digital whiteboard. Um, and and so, so we have life and we have resurrection. But, but again, the question is, well, where are they now? And I would say that our loved ones are, are, are indeed in heaven, uh, but not in the fact that they're currently got a pair of wings and a halo. But in heaven, in that they are experiencing the fullness of the presence of God, where His will in in the, in the realm of reality, where His will is done perfectly all the time, and the and the grace and the presence of God is unveiled. But it's really interesting because at the same time, whether, where well, there seems to be this immediacy to the presence of God after bodily death. Today you will be with me in paradise. It is better for me to to, to die. To die is to gain, but to live is to Christ. There seems to be in the scripture this this uh, temporary holding place while those who are have passed away are awaiting bodily resurrection and the final judgment. Are you with me? Pastor Andy just said that there's purgatory. No, I didn't. Okay? I did not say that it's a place where you can, like, pray them up. I didn't say that there's levels. Uh, I didn't say any of that. I simply said that for those who have died, there seems to be this holding place while they await bodily resurrection into God's new world. Now, the mistake that we've made in modern Christianity is we have made the middle ground the end and the hope. And we've, we've actually said, oh, good, Jesus died and was resurrected, and so now I can just go to heaven. And we've totally left out what has been the foundation of this whole series is that there's something beyond even that. There's, so, there's life after Life after death. Huh? That's good. Think about that for a while. There's life after life after death. There is resurrection into a real physical world where we receive real physical, but albeit different physical bodies. Now, this is further evidenced by the Greek in John chapter... Um, which, what, what, what chapter was that in? John chapter 14, where in my father's house there are many dwelling places... The Greek word for dwelling places is the word mone. The Greek word mone. Oh, come on. There we go. Mone. And, and, and not like, I'm going to get me some mone. Not like that. Now, places, dwelling places, the, the uh, plural for that would be mo, monai" or mone, like this. Now, in Greek, this literally means a dwelling or a residence, but in, in the ancient Greek language, this word is often used as a temporary residence or dwelling while you're on your way to your final destination. So, this is actually a temporary dwelling that Jesus is talking about. Interesting when you get a little bit of handle on the original language. So, the point that I simply want to make and the answer to the questions that you've been asking me is those who have died in Christ are right now experiencing all the fullness of the presence of God while they await bodily resurrection into God's new world. Because remember, those who have died in Christ will be, raised first. There's a particular order. When Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's always the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are still alive at his coming will uh, be ushered into God's new creation. And we will be changed if God comes back during our lifetime. We will be changed, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. This is the foundation of our hope. And I know this is far different than probably what you have heard growing up. But it's because we have read the scripture with a very particular cultural perspective. And when you go back to the original language and you begin to study the Greek and what's really going on, uh, we find out that a lot of our cultural assumptions about heaven and the afterlife aren't necessarily true. And what I feel like this offers us is a much more mature hope about the future. Okay, does that answer some questions? How many of you are like, that also raises a whole nother set of questions? Okay, you have cleared up some and you have raised a whole bunch of others. Uh, That's all right. For for, for some of you that are um, really into this and you want to discover this more, I would be honestly more than happy to to meet with you and talk and explore some of these things together. Uh, But what I want to do today then is is, uh, ask the question, in light of all of this, in light of all of this, how then should we live? How then should we live? Because I have a very uh, strong conviction that what we believe about death affects how we live life. What we believe about the end affects the present. And, and so, and Paul actually uh, addresses this very thing uh, when he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so, um, we, we, we began this series in First Corinthians chapter 15. I want to end this series in 1 Corinthians 15 because uh, it is a long chapter. It's like swimming through mud to get through it. But it is the longest and most in-depth dealing uh, with resurrection in the New Testament. So if we want to understand resurrection and we want to understand our future hope, we have to understand 1 Corinthians 15. And so I want to read a big portion of it to you this morning. And uh, then we'll go from there and hopefully we'll do a little bit more drawing Along the way, <laughs> that'll be fun. Okay, uh, but in the meantime, let's get out of that and uh, let's read First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty nine through fifty eight. Twenty nine through fifty eight. This is a lengthy passage of scripture. Stick with me. I want to read it all, and I actually want to read another section of the of the passage. Um, of the chapter a little bit later on in the message today. So we're going to read a lot of Scripture, but I feel like uh, I I don't want to just piecemeal it together. I want to make sure that we get sort of the full counsel of Scripture here. So here it goes. Uh, Starting with verse 29 in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if there is no resurrection, this is precisely what Paul is dealing with. Okay, there's some people out there saying there is no resurrection. Sound familiar? If there is no resurrection, then... Here's what happens. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? And if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? For I die every day. And I mean that, brothers. Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? Uh, It's interesting here. He's not literally talking about like fighting a wild beast. Uh, but he's calling those who oppose the message of the gospel wild beasts. Isn't that kind of fun? (laughs) So he's not talking about lions and tigers and bears. Yeah, oh my, right? He's not talking about that. He's talking about people that oppose the gospel. So if I fought these these. Wild beasts, these people who oppose the gospel. If I fought them in Ephesus for mere human reasons, uh, what have I gained? For if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And do not be, be, be misled, for bad company corrupts good character. Uh, come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. But some may ask, how are the dead raised, and what kind of body will they come? Well, How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be but a seed, perhaps of weeds or of something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own kind of body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds have another. Fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly body is uh, is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly body is another. Now, again, because we read this with a particular mindset that is culturally informed, we think, oh, there you have it. There's a physical body and then there's a spiritual body or a heavenly body. But this isn't actually what Paul is talking about at all. He's not talking about a disembodied heavenly body. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a couple of verses. The sun has one kind of splendor and the moon another and the stars another. And the stars differ from uh, star in splendor so will it be at the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown imperishable, it will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. And again, we might say, oh, well, there you have it. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's only a soul or a spirit. It doesn't have a physical body. It's a spiritual body body. What he's talking about, though, is he isn't saying it's raised as a spirit. He says it's raised as a spiritual body, which is what is the animating force behind the physical body. It is the spirit of God. That's what he's talking about. Uh, He's talking about the pneuma of God. That's the the breath or the wind or the spirit of God. So it it doesn't have to do with the form or shape of the body. It has to do with the Uh, empowering force behind the body. Does that make sense? There's an important distinction there. So again, when we come to these passages, it's easy to say, oh, physical body, and then in heaven, a, a spirit or a soul, but that's not at all what he's talking about. Remember, all of these have a body. Now, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, the life-giving spirit. Now, the spiritual, uh, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are we who are uh, of, of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also Are those who are of heaven, and just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But listen, I tell you a great mystery: Uh, we will not we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, again, he's making the assumption that Jesus will return during his lifetime. And so he's saying those who have died in Christ all around us uh, will be raised and they will trade in and be, receive an imperishable body, but we will be changed. In other words, uh, if we're still alive at the coming of Jesus, we don't have to die first. We'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. Verse 53, for the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Okay, when all of these things have been completing cl- completed, then this is the truth that we stand on. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So where, O oh death, is your victory? And where, O oh death, is your sting? Some of the most hopeful words in all of Scripture. For the sting of 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 death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, is not in vain. Can we tackle this in about half an hour? We're gonna try, we're gonna try. I've entitled this message, Implications of Resurrection. In other words, what we believe about the resurrection has important implications or consequences or results in our life. The question that we have to ask anytime we come to a scripture is what are we talking about in context? And so the the contextual question that we have to ask is what is going on in Corinth that would motivate Paul to write this? In other words, there is some confusion in Corinth regarding resurrection. And so Paul feels compelled to write this very lengthy chapter. Of course, he didn't write it as a chapter. He just wrote the whole letter, and then we chaptered it out later on. But he writes this to the, the church community in Corinth to address some confusion that they had in their community. And, and that, the confusion was this, that many believed that there was no resurrection. It was it was going around that it was assumed that that the there was no connection between the resurrection of Christ and our eventual fate for those who die in Christ. They they weren't making the connection between Jesus was raised bodily and then that we too will be raised bodily. And they were just saying they were taking one and then disregarding the other. And Paul says it feels so strongly about this this confusion that he decides to write this letter to them in order to address part of this confusion because he knows that out of belief comes actions. He knows that if we take the resurrection and belief in our bodily resurrection and our hope in the new world, if we take that away, and we trade it in for something else, or we lose it altogether, there are certain consequences, there are certain implications of how we live, because out of belief comes action. Do you follow the the thought? Yes, you guys have gotta be with me here. I'm in teaching mode again, not preaching mode, so stick with me. Next week is gonna be just a lot of fun. We're just gonna share vision for the church, and so if you guys are like, this classroom is just killing me, and I can't hardly make it through this series. Uh, just stick with us. Next week's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, to me, this is fun too. So, uh, hang out with me for a little while here this morning. So, out of belief comes action, and they failed to make the connection between the resurrection of the bodily resurrection of Christ and their own fate. And, and the truth is, is that we face this same confusion today that by and large, the cultural message that we are taught is almost completely void of resurrection in the church. In fact, you can tell this just by the way we celebrate the Christian calendar, where Christmas in a lot of churches trumps Easter. Right? And let's just, let's play this game for a moment. Let's take Christmas out of the New Testament. You lose two chapters, one in Luke and one in Matthew. Now, let's take out the resurrection. You lose the story of the resurrection in each of the Gospels, and you lose all of Paul's letters that hinge on the fact that Jesus was resurrected, right? And so the way in which we've come to practice our Christianity, by and large, is void of resurrection. We we don't talk about our own resurrection in God's new world. We talk about spirits floating off into the sky. We we don't talk about the resurrection of Jesus only so much as as it offers us sort of this hope and new life in Christ but we, there's, there is, it is that and so much more is what I want to communicate in this series. And so Corinth faced this confusion. We face this confusion in our own uh, life and culture and, and communicating a gospel where Christ is only, re- is only resurrected and the rest of us just have our spirits float off into heaven is in essence saying there is no resurrection. Now, interestingly enough, in Corinth, The confusion was primarily among Gentile believers, among Gentile believers, which if you're here this morning, unless you are Jewish and have accepted Christ as your savior, which some, there's a whole movement among Jewish people that are saying, in fact, the Messiah has indeed come. Uh, But if you, unless you're here today and you're Jewish, you are a Gentile believer. And so the confusion that Paul is addressing was largely among Gentile believers because the Jews believed that in, the, in bodily resurrection for all those who died in faith, and they believed that it would come at the very same time as God's final judgment. So when Christ was raised from the dead, those who accepted Christ as the Messiah, they believed that his return and the final judgment would be very soon because they saw God's new world breaking in. They said their thought was if Jesus has been raised, then it's got to be very soon before the final judgment and everything else comes and God's new world is already breaking in because one person just isn't resurrected in isolation. That was the belief among the Jews in the ancient world. One person just isn't resurrected like over here. We're all resurrected at God's final judgment and God's kingdom come. And, and what Jesus does is he shows us that the kingdom is, is breaking in. And uh, now we live, right? Remember this picture I drew? We live in sort of this messy middle ground where, where death still has its effect but the kingdom of God is breaking in. And so, um, but it was non-Jewish believers who, who were having trouble making the connection between Christ's resurrection and their own eventual fate if they died in Christ. And what Paul says is he talks about that there are, there are several uh, very real consequences if we strip bodily resurrection out of our belief system. And uh, I wanna talk about some of those today. He, he starts this argument where we started reading in 29, but actually he starts it in verse 12 through 19. And so uh, let's read 12 through 19 together. And I told you we'd read a, a big portion of this chapter, uh, but let's let's read 12 through 19 together. It says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can, you, how, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, right? They go hand in hand. If you teach that Christ has been raised and you believe that, then how, on the other hand, can you teach that there is no resurrection for us? there's, There's absolutely no separation between the two. If Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, those who die in Christ will also be raised bodily from the dead. So, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. uh, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are pitied more than all men. If our hope is, is only right here and right now, then we are pitied among all men. And if our hope is only purely future-oriented, then we have only have a half-baked hope. The hope of the gospel is the hope of a sure future that God is bringing about that reaches right into your everyday life. Some of you might be here and you're like, you know what, this teaching is just information. It's not practical in my life at all. What am I supposed to go and do with some of this information? Listen, the the information leads to transformation because if, if we have this right hope over here, then that hope reaches into our everyday lives. No, no matter what you're going through, whether it's a, the death of a loved one, whether it's a loss of some kind, whether it's a disappointment, whether, whether whatever it is, there is hope available for you. And so let's talk about some of these. Paul says, first of all, he says, if there is no resurrection, so let's go down that road a little bit. We have resurrection here in the middle. And let's say, There is no resurrection. What does Paul say? He says, first of all, our message is in vain. Our message is in vain. Second, he says, your faith is futile. Third, he says, sin keeps its hold in your life. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was resurrected so that the grip of sin in your life will no longer have to hold your heart. God died and then was resurrected so that we could be set free from sin. Not that you'll never ever sin again, but so that sin won't rule your life and your heart like it used to. So that the inclination of your heart and the allegiance of your heart can belong solely to God. That we don't have to be in this constant battle of am I going Am I going to fall into this temptation. There is made available to you through the cross and resurrection of Jesus a level of victory in this life over sin. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, if you strip your Christian hope and say, actually, resurrection is just something that was over there that Jesus did, and now we can sort of have like this generic spiritual hope. Paul says, if you've done that, then there is no way for sin to be ultimately defeated in your heart. Sin will keep its hold in your life. And we wonder... Why so many people, Christians, struggle with habitual sin for years and years and years and years and never find victory over it. Could it be partly because we have stripped our real hope? I'm not naive enough to say that the sin issues are simple and, and can just be fixed with a, with a magic pill or you just take the blue pill called Jesus and everything will be fine, Right? not that naive but but there's a level of victory made available to us in the cross and the resurrection that we by and large don't see in Christians today. And Paul's argument is if you strip your belief system of resurrection then sin keeps a hold and the other thing he says is that the dead in Christ are lost. One of the pieces of feedback that I got from this series is uh, sometimes I'll say, I lost my dad. And uh, this person also lost someone very recently. And they said, hold on, they're not lost. We know exactly where they're at, right? But if we strip resurrection out of our belief system, then Paul says, in fact, they are. They're truly lost. And then... So those are four that we get in 12 and 19. And then when we pick up on verse 29, he he goes even further. Now, if there is no resurrection, and he he says this. He says, "What what will those do who are baptized for the dead? And if the dead are not raised at all, then why aren't people baptized for them? Does anyone else just wanna say, what? Right? I mean, what is this talking about? Well, what it's talking about is vicarious baptism on behalf of the dead. Never heard that before either, have you? This is the only evidence in all of of first century Christianity that we have any evidence of vicarious baptism on behalf of the dead. And, in fact, Paul is not even saying, he's not even commending the practice to us. He's not saying that's something that we should do. He's not saying that's something that, you know, hey, let's, like, if we started a new ministry, uh, baptism for the dead, we'd we'd be be doing all right, wouldn't we? I mean, people would be just flocking in from everywhere. So Paul is not commending this practice to us. And it's very, this is very mysterious. We don't understand this. We don't understand, because we have no other history to even base it on It's just kind of out of nowhere in first corinthians 15 we have this indication that this was a practice on some level in the in the first century church and that's not even the point the point is again not that he's commending it to us and that we should start doing it the point is it's of no value if there's no resurrection and so let's take that into sort of a modern day context and, and let's begin to think about what are the ministries that we do sort of corporately or as a community that are, are to, to benefit the kingdom of God, right? We, we give money every Christmas to build wells in Africa. And, and, and so far as a church, we've built 90 wells in the last five years. And, and there's, we've, we've had tens of thousands of lives changed because we become generous at Christmas and we do Christmas differently and we focus on giving things away. It, Paul would, would say to us, if there is no resurrection, then why would you even do that? Why even, why even give to those? Why even go to feed the homeless? Why even sponsor a Renee's Hope where we can, where we can show love and dignity to those who, who are, are in our culture are, are, are totally ignored, the homeless community? Why, why would we do that? Paul would say to us, Why do that if there is no resurrection? I mean, if there is no future hope of resurrection, why do that at all? In other words, our ministry as a community is in vain. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. Ministry as a community is in vain if if you take away the resurrection. And then he goes on to say he was fighting wild beasts in Ephesus, right? And the wild beasts... Are not these animals, but rather they're people who oppose the gospel. And so not only is ministry as a community in vain, but if you take away the resurrection, then personal ministry is in vain. That's a pretty sobering list, isn't it? I mean, he wants to address some confusion in Corinth. And he lands on this fact that, man if you if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead if you don't believe in what is communicated later on in this chapter that that in a twinkling of an eye will be changed and the trumpet will sound and God's new world will be ushered in. And and then you combine that with 1 Thessalonians 4, that the dead in Christ will rise and that those who are still left alive will will meet God in the air and will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, be ushered back into God's new creation where we'll we'll live in in these physical bodies in, in redeemed bodies in a redeemed earth. Folks, this is good news. And it provides us hope if we take that away, these are the implications that Paul talks about. My picture says, desktop trial, because it's a trial. We're just trying it out. I didn't want to pay for it before I knew it worked. So sorry Sorry that you can't see that in the corner. Um, All kinds of implications. Our message is in vain. The resurrection of Christ is central. The bodily resurrection is central, is the central message of the the gospel and the New Testament that gives us hope. And you are still in your sins. The reason the resurrection of Christ is central to the gospel is because it is that work of Christ accomplished on the cross that frees us from our sin, where where the resurrection confirms or validates the work on the cross. If Jesus just died and never rose again, then so what? But if Jesus dies for the sin of the world, and then what the resurrection does is it validates that work. It makes it real in our lives. And so Paul says, if you take away the resurrection of those who are in Christ, you also have to take away the resurrection of Christ. And if you take away the resurrection of Christ, then you are still in your sin. Well, he goes on to say and to communicate then that uh, that there's all kinds of information about those, uh, But since there is a resurrection. But before I do that, I want to mention one other thing. He says this in, uh, in verse 32, the last part of it. If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. I mean, if the dead are not raised, then go for it, brother. That's like, that's like the ancient... Way of saying, go and party like it's nineteen ninety nine, dude. You guys know that Prince. If, 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 I won't ask if you're a Prince fan. I won't. I won't embarrass you like that. But uh, I mean, th- this is like seriously, man. If the dead are not raised, then, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow. We're just going to die. I mean, if, if death is the end, then then go then go live it up. And if you take away that hope, then it's essentially the the fact of what we see all. Over in our culture. Go ahead. If the dead are not raised, then go live like hell. Go cover your pain in alcohol because there is no other hope available. Right? So go drink it up to cover it up. And it's all good because what else do you have available to you? I mean, if there is no resurrection, you've taken away the Christian hope. So you might as well go find, uh, try to find your hope in the bottom of a bottle. Good luck. I mean, if the dead are not raised, then go ahead and have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Go for it. Live it up, dude. Get after it. Because what hope do you have? Don't try to find your your sure foundation and your confidence and your beauty in Christ. Go try to find it in someone else's bed every night. Oh, it's getting real uncomfortable in here now. But this is essentially what Paul is saying. If you strip away the resurrection, the foundation of Christian hope, then what you have left is nothing but grasps of hope that this world has to offer. And guess what? For any of you and any of us that have tried to find our hope in something other than hope has a name, and his name is Jesus you have found that there is no hope in someone else's bed, that you have found that there's no hope at the bottom of the bottle. You have found that there's no hope in trying to be a people pleaser all your life. You have found that there's no hope in, in, in disregarding boundaries in your life. You have found that there's no hope in seeking revenge on whoever did you wrong and withholding forgiveness and, and showing them, "I'll show and, and saying to them, "I'll show you," and you'll pay back, you'll get paid back for what I did to you. There is no hope in any of that. Paul essentially says, if you take away the resurrection, then go ahead and answer all your appetites until you're fully satisfied. And he, of course, says that tongue in cheek, knowing that if you answer all your appetites, you'll never be satisfied. That the only thing that can satisfy is the presence of God through relationship with Christ. You know, that's why we gather together every week. Why don't we just have church once a month? Well, because we need each other every seven days. We need to come together and sing and celebrate and encourage and learn and hear a word from God. We need that. To keep, our, to keep feeding ourselves the goodness of God, the presence of God. We need that to keep going. We need that to remind ourselves of the great hope that we have because it's so easy to place our hope in something else. It's so easy to, to, to believe, now I'm gonna place my hope over here. This is very attractive for the moment. It seems to be meeting sort of this momentary need. I'm gonna place my hope in there. But Paul wants to encourage us and he wants to address the confusion in Corinth and say, you're sure Hope is found in Jesus, and Jesus alone. Amen? So then he draws a comparison. And he he says that then there are all kinds of, of implications if we do believe in resurrection. And so let's start a new one. This time, resurrection isn't crossed out. The resurrection sits central to our faith. It sits right in the middle and it's, it lands as the foundation of our hope. Oh, come on. What happened? That's not what my screen looks like. All right, let's try it. We good? Oh, boy, I got nervous. This time, resurrection sits at the center. And the implications then are, number one, sin loses its hold. Sin loses its hold. The confusion in Corinth was this. If there is no resurrection and uh, ultimately we're going to dump this body in favor of sort of this disembodied existence somewhere else, then there were a lot of people in the church beginning to say, what I do in the body is of no consequence because I'm dumping that whole thing anyway, right? I'm, I'm sort of dumping this shell in favor of my soul or my spirit floating away into heaven. And so whatever I do in my body is of no consequence, and, and Paul says, absolutely not. There is a deep connection between our bodily life and our faith in Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that because Jesus was, was killed on the cross, and then because he was resurrected, then we, don't, we, we have sort of this moral ground to stand on, this moral compass that what we do in the body matters and how we care for our body matters. Think of it this way. We find ourselves in the middle of a story. The story begins with a very physical creation that goes awry. The story ends with a very physical creation that is fully redeemed and renewed. And we ourselves find ourselves right in the middle. And we have a body in this creation, we have a body in God's new creation, and we ought to live in such a way that we anticipate the end of the story. And so Paul says, sin loses its hold. What we do in the body matters. There's a deep connection between morality and faith. Imagine that, right? But the problem is, is that way too many people want Jesus as their Savior but not as their Lord. I just want Jesus to be my Savior. I mean, I'm going to float away out of this body anyway, and so as long as I can get on the bus to heaven, everything's good, and I can just go ahead and live like I want. I can go eat and drink for tomorrow I die, and then my soul floats away, and then I live in, in, in heaven, Right? But Paul is saying it's not that way. Paul is saying there's a deep connection in our physical body of what we do now and later. We ought to anticipate the future in our body right now because way too many people want Jesus as their savior so they float off into heaven when they die and they don't want Jesus as their Lord. Of How do I run my life right now? God, what do I need to do to be in obedience and walk in obedience with you right now? I come into contact with all kinds of people who are way excited about getting to heaven when they die. And so they're like, yeah, Jesus is awesome, man. He's like my ticket to an an eternal bliss. All right, man, then you need to maybe consider uh, stop having sex with every girl you see. No, no, man, come come on, man. You're, You're a dude, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, you know, excuses. So you want Jesus as a, as a savior, but you don't want Jesus as a Lord, right? I mean, so that's what Paul, that's the mindset that Paul is fighting against. And he's saying, man, if we keep resurrection central, then what we do in the body matters and sin has a possibility of losing its hold. We still have to open ourselves up. We still have to offer ourselves to God. We still have to allow him to work in our hearts. There's still all kinds of of things that we have a role to play in that process, but the work of Jesus is complete and offers us all kinds of opportunity to live out of the grip of sin in our lives. Does that make sense? And then then this one, death is swallowed up. Death is swallowed up. Isn't that good news, man? Death is swallowed up. On one hand, you have like eat and drink and be merry and because tomorrow you're gonna die and death is all there is. That's the end. Well, you died. And then on the other hand, Paul says, but if we keep resurrection central, the implication of that is that death has been swallowed up. The death is ultimately defeated. And then I love this. The way he ends this chapter is so interesting. He says then, your works are not in vain. Your works are not in vain. Compare that to the other list, right? If we take out the resurrection, then our message is in vain. Our faith is in vain. Our ministry, both personally and corporately, is in vain. What you do if you take out the resurrection is of no consequence. It doesn't matter, is Paul's message. But if you keep resurrection in the central, where it belongs, and if you hold that intact, then he says, everything that you do in the name of the Lord is not in vain. Every good work done in the name of the Lord is gathered up and expressed in God's new creation. Those of you who are gonna volunteer for eKids because we showed an awesome video this morning, your work with the kids is not in vain. You You might leave one Sunday and you're like, man, those kids they don't listen and they're just oh and I don't even feel like I'm making any difference and all this kind of stuff. You may leave there, you won't because our kids are angels. But you may leave there, and you know, you might say, Oh, this is this is of no consequence, I'm not doing any good. And Paul's promise to you is that it absolutely matters that what you do counts. Every gift you give matters. And it counts. And it goes towards something. And man, I just want you to to picture for a moment all the good things that we do as a community, all the good ministry that you participate in personally, whether it's here at the church or in your neighborhood or in your workplaces, God's promise is that because of the resurrection, because of the hope of God's redeemed world, every one of those acts done in the name of the Lord, is gathered up and expressed in this new world. You want to know what God's new world looks like? It looks like kids, it looks like adults investing in the lives of children. It looks like people giving sacrificially to the work of the, of the Lord. It looks like people offering words of kindness and compassion to someone who is down and doesn't know that they can make it another day. It looks like, like someone who is, who is hurting and, and someone else coming alongside of them and offering a prayer of healing and God healing miraculously. All of these good things gathered up and expressed in God's new world. But you take that away and Paul says, nothing, is of any consequence if you take away the central message of the New Testament. But if you keep it there, where it belongs, and you free yourself from the confusion, then not only is there all kinds of hope available to you, but it's a motivation to go and do the work of the kingdom of God. I hope that this series has really provided you with tremendous hope. Because when my dad died, it could have been one of the darkest, most difficult, and impossible times of my life. Because my dad to me was, he he was a tremendous mentor to me. And not because we spent hours together over cups of coffee or we had this direct mentorship, but because he modeled for me all kinds of things that I would too want to model. And he wasn't a perfect dad. There isn't a perfect dad, except for one, our father in heaven. But Losing someone that close and that significant in our lives can be absolutely hopeless. But right when he died, I had just been thinking about some of these concepts, these truths, these ideas. And it really gave me an opportunity to put into practice what I had been learning. And I want to be real honest with you for a moment. The only time things... That brought me to tears in the few days after my dad passed away. It was not anguish over what I had lost. It was not anger over what my life had been robbed of because of his death. What brought me to tears was the tremendous hope that he died in Christ and that one day his body, that was so broken by the cancer, would be fully redeemed that he himself, his soul, the deepest parts of him, and his body would be redeemed in God's new world. And that's what brought me to tears in the funeral home when I looked at his body in the casket, was thinking of the tremendous hope that we have in Christ. And it brings me to this realization of one thing that Paul says, that I think is so true. And that is verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. That there is this truth in the gospel that we must die in order to truly live. And for my dad, that is now expressed in all of its fullness. He physically died, and yet now he lives in all the fullness of the presence of God while he awaits bodily resurrection into God's new world. But the same is true for you and I. That the scripture says that when we are in Christ, we ourselves become a new creation. But there is a death that must occur first. And that is the death to ourselves, to our selfish that want to make ourselves the king, the savior, the Lord of our own lives. You see, the scripture is true when it says that you cannot have, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve and allow the God, God, Jesus Christ, to be Lord of your life while you yourself try to maintain control. That in order for this new world and this new life to be made available to us, we must first die to ourselves, invite God in, place our faith in Christ and then walk with him as both our savior and our Lord. And that's so important that we place our faith in him initially, but then we learn to walk in continual obedience to him. That's what it looks like to live with him as Lord. The the scripture talks about this when it says in Romans chapter six, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. For how can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life see, the scripture talks about us dying to ourselves and joining Christ in his death so that we may be raised to new life. And then when we die, physically, that is expressed in all of its fullness. And those who die in Christ are ushered into a brand new life in Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit therodefc.org and click online giving.